This episode of Podcast for America is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code AMERICA at checkout to get a 10% discount. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello from the Slate Studios in New York City. This is Podcast for America, a show from Panoply about the creeping fascism in an American presidential campaign cycle. I'm Alex Wagner of MSNBC in New York. Joining me from our D.C. studios are Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine and Annie Lowry, contributing editor with New York Magazine. Gentlemen, hi, lady, hi hi hi, 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 hi. Hi, say hi. Hi. We're going to be really, really um, proactive Yeah. in our highs. <laughs> this is, this is going to be the happiest moment of the whole show. Mm-hmm. I'm predicting. It's all downhill from here, folks. The rest no, of no, no, it no. will Listen. just be vitriol and indignation. Deep tease. Okay, here's what's happening on this week's installment of Podcast for America. President Obama made a rare Oval Office speech this week to talk about the terrorist threat in the United States, calling for greater gun safety measures and warning Americans not to give in to fear, hatred, or intimidation. The next day, perhaps in response, the Donald called for a ban on all Muslims entering the United States. We will talk about Obama the Donald and the 2016 race, who this might affect the most, how the Republican candidates have responded thus far. And then we will close out with a little segment we like to call If I Were in Charge. Okay, so let's just get immediately to the getting, which is a ban on all Muslims entering the United States. I'm really saying that because the front runner in the Republican race for president really said that. And joining us to really discuss that is a fount of knowledge campaign, political, presidential, and otherwise, the wonderful Dave Weigel. Dave, it's great to hear you on this podcast. That's good to be on this podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Dave, your immediate reaction when you heard this proposed plan, I guess you could call it, from Donald Trump? Well, to me, the funniest part of this statement, and it says something about me that I immediately go to the funniest as opposed to the most worrisome part of this, was that the New York Times, in reporting on this, had to check with the spokeswoman for Trump to confirm that the statement was real. That maybe somebody <laughs> had hijacked Donald Trump's accounts and was sending out, instead of Nigerian phishing emails, <laughs> more aggressive statements on Muslims. And to me, I, I wasn't surprised at all. <laughs> this think? is like something a Democratic plant would do to goad the worst elements of the GOP into, I don't know flagrant behavior? I think it actually might be something that benefits more Democrats, which is tough to do on issues like this, because you saw so much anger and panic about Muslims after Paris and more after San Bernardino. Just in my experience, just in the very scientific experience of a reporter asking Republicans at events, hey, what do you think of of Muslims in America? Uh, I never heard that we need to keep all Muslims out of the country. I heard a little bit of panic about Syrian refugees, but nothing this extreme. So either Trump is over his skis or he has a good sense that this is what's coming. This is what people want to hear next. I was just funny because when I heard this, I was standing with Annie literally over the water cooler um, (laughs) here in our Washington Bureau of Podcast for America. And I said, oh, okay, so Trump wants to ban the entry of all Muslims into the country. Uh, He'll be at 50 percent by the end of the week. Wow. (laughs) I mean— I think the interesting part of this will be what is the response, not the predictable outrage from Democrats, but you know people who, who care about law. Well, who will freedom step of up? Like, will will Ted Cruz? You know, will they all just sort of like try to sort of kowtow to him and either try to outdo him or try to, um, you know, say, well, I'm just going to talk about my own. I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, what kind of condemnation 
will he have, if any, within the Republican Party? Or, or does the Republican Party even exist anymore? Is it just like one big Trump party and Republicans, you know, occasionally try to hang on the back of the airplane? The first person I, I talked to after this statement, that was actually, well, the second person. The first person I talked to was someone at CARE, uh, the Council on American Islamic Relations, who literally ap- apologized for using so many Hitler metaphors as he answered me on this. Uh, and then the, then the second call was to Lindsey Graham, who was saying kind of what you were saying, which is that it's time for Ted Cruz to, to say whether he's going to keep humoring this guy or whether he agrees with him. Now, remember, Ted Cruz did, during that fear over whether Trump actually favored some database or Muslims, which is really too thorny to get into now and actually in retrospect, his moderate position. Uh, <laughs> during that, Cruz said, well, I don't agree, agree with all that, but I like Donald Trump a lot. Lindsey Graham is literally an asterisk or 1% in the polls, but he will remain a senior senator, more senior than Ted Cruz, etc., uh, who speaks for the more hawkish Republicans who think you can't be a hawk if you believe this stuff. This is hurting us. This sounds tough, and it's, it's hurting our ability to fight the war on terror and it's making Barack Obama look like he's competent if, if, we, if we talk like this. So people with that interest, I think, are going to say what Graham did. I'd be surprised if Ted Cruz does not find a way to cr- criticize this. Annie, in the, again, New York Times reporting of this, I will read you a little paragraph. A spokeswoman for Mr. Trump confirmed the authenticity of the statement, asked what prompted it. Mr. Trump said, death, according to the <laughs> spokeswoman. I mean, just nobody has a way with the media and words the way Donald Trump does. No, no. And it's just like, it all gets like crazier and crazier. So in the statement, he's citing this poll from the Center for Security Policy, which is it's basically like, it's not even a think tank. It's, it's like not a, even. It's, you know, it's a racist. I don't know, even know what it is. What's funny is that I finally with Trump at this point reached the point where I was like, this is actually just trolling. This is performance art. He's doing this to provoke exactly the reaction that he's getting. And yes, he's going to be rewarded for it for by some voters. And that's really, really depressing. And the thing that you worry about is, I mean, does this actually help to stoke more Islamophobia in the United States? That's how I feel after this statement. I guess I feel like, I mean, maybe this is too, it's not Pollyannish. It's more Chicken Little, I guess. I mean, I feel like an answer to that question, Annie, yes, it's not good for, I mean, it's not good no. for Trump to be, I think, in, in flame. I mean, the again, I, we're like talking, we're quoting the New York Times right and left, Mark. I swear to God, we're not on the payroll. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there was an analysis this weekend by Maggie Haberman, and I can't remember who the other reporters were, but analyzing all the words that Donald Trump had said in the week prior. And he is giving voice to a sort of demagoguery that is familiar to Americans who lived through George Wallace and mm-hmm. Barry Goldwater and Pat Buchanan. But what's different about Trump, and I'd love to get Dave's thoughts on this too, is he he says these incredibly demagogic, divisive, hateful, bigoted, probably unconstitutional things in this kind of jovial, very tele like telegenic sort of fashion. I'm not actually calling Donald yeah, Trump like telegenic. I'm saying it as it is. Yeah, and and it's this kind yeah. of very comfortable, funny plain speak that masks what is very, very dark, problematic language, I think, if you are looking for a more peaceable democracy. Well what it reminds me of is actually Glenn Beck in his vintage two thousand nine first year of Obama era. Glenn Beck still exists, but he's kind of fallen off in cultural relevance. It's a little bit of that, a little bit of Lonesome Roads from the old Elia Kazan movie. It is. Wait, oh, oh, Elia Kazan. Wait, sorry. What For those of us who missed that reference, what is it? For Lonesome Roads from A Face in the Crowd, who is a 
just a good old boy musician who becomes basically a proto-fascist radio and TV commentator. Uh, there are a lot of this that we've kind of been priming ourselves in pop culture for something like this for 60 years. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the piece you're discussing compared it to George Wallace, but that was somebody who came through politics and had, if you go back and look at his speeches, they're demagogic, but there's a little more coherent. Trump is, nobody's been as jocular and, I mean, I say that literally, he, you know, curses. Right. One of his biggest applause lines is, we're going to bomb the shit out of ISIS, which is a strange thing to hear applause for, given that most foreign policy is conducted in these very, you know, Center, Center for Foreign Relations, you know, thoughtful panel, chin-wagging tones. No one has talked like this, but we've kind of been expecting somebody to come around and talk like this. When I, when I saw the statement, I didn't think to email the spokeswoman. I thought, this is where Trump goes next. Obviously it is. And what Care was telling me, again, the um, Council on American-Islamic Relations, he, he was just spitballing with me. I don't know. What, what are you going to do next? Final solution for Muslims or internment camps? With this resignation that nothing would be surprising anymore. I will be interested to hear. I mean, Chris Christie, if there's one person I actually will be watching to respond to this. I mean, he's someone who actually seems to be, he's been in law enforcement. He sort of knows what's possible. He's as opportunistic as anyone else. But, you know, he's been surging a little bit. I mean, he kind of, you know, if if he has a space at all, it sort of would be the Jeb establishment-ish space. And, you know, maybe he'll say something, but mostly it's just kind of sad. I mean, the fact that there is such a moral vacuum in public life, but, you know, certainly in the Republican Party today, I think is really sad. I mean, I think this is one of our two major parties. Yeah. And the, the reason this is not a fringe movement is because he has a lot of support. And you just sort of wonder, what road are we headed down? I mean, where will this be in 12 years? I mean, I keep thinking of the movie Idiocracy, which I know is often mm-hmm. invoked in situations like this. That's Elia Kazan's Idiocracy, right? This is, I mean, it's not a great movie. This Mike Judge movie where essentially every sort of lowest common denominator of the culture has been realized and it sort of looks in this sort of dystopian lens of like what will happen 50, maybe 100 years down the road if every bit of stupid from the culture, from the politics, from just sort of the national conversation comes to its logical extreme. And, you know, it's a tough movie to watch. One, because, you know, again, it's not that good. But, you know, it's essentially <laughs> but, but it's essentially the same principle of th- there just aren't a lot of appeals to better demons here. Yeah. I also wonder, some part of me thinks that these Republican candidates believe what they're saying when they talk about freedom of religion in the context of, let's say, Obamacare, that there is some sort of moral fiber in them that believes somehow that religion is being stomped upon. And then to turn around and have the front runner of your party suggest that the solution here is about targeting a certain section of the faithful it seems to me unconscionable to just stand by and sort of say, well, I don't know that we agree here. I mean, this, this I think, calls for someone to say, hey, this is wrong and Donald Trump needs to be stopped. I think it speaks also to how politics have become much more cultural and tribal than they have been about politics, right? Like the notion that a conservative would support this kind of action, which is like against everything that is enshrined in American law, he's speaking to a culture and the other culture responds by like reviling it even more. It's kind of funny. I I had this like idle thought that I'm like, this is the kind of shit that makes you think that America will just split in half with like the coasts leaving the middle. I mean, I don't even know what parts split off at this point. Well, that that gets to a moment we had a week and a half ago that could have stanched some of this, possibly, which was the Republican governor climbing over one another 
to say that he, of course, he won't let Muslim refugees in the United States. Just, I don't, I just don't want to put up with surprise from these people if they indulge that kind of sentiment, because that sentiment at its core was basically the same sentiment as this: that there is something, some, something about Muslims that makes them almost sleeper cells that can go off, if they're, and they can be radicalized so easily that we have to have the suspicion of all of them. So if you, that's the mainstream position endorsed by the governor, Republican governor of Massachusetts is supposed to be moderate, the Republican governor of Illinois is supposed to be moderate, et cetera, then how can they be so shocked when Donald Trump says, yeah, as an extension of that, let's, let's, just, call, let's just make it easier and say no Muslims whatsoever. Yeah. Dave, how do the campaigns respond to moments like this from your reporting? I mean, are they like, oh, shit, there goes Donald Trump again? <laughs> like, what? Like, take us a little bit behind the curtain and so far as you've gotten peaks. It changes depending on how that person doing the polls, I almost want to say, if I can be cynical about it. I, I have seen times where Rand Paul, for example, did not want to talk about Trump. You would ask him, and he'd literally roll his eyes and then start to change the subject about something else. I've seen it where he brings it up, and I've seen that with everyone, ex- with the exception of uh, Rubio. There have been stories about how Chris Christie is all of a sudden attacking Trump. He's been kind of doing this for a while. Christie will usually dismiss Trump in, a, in the sense of saying that these are serious times, we shouldn't cast a protest vote, etc. But the guys who are the most eager to criticize Trump are the guys who are in trouble and as Trump delights in pointing out, they mostly pick the next step in that, which is collapsing and dropping out the presidential race. The guys who Bobby Jindal had a press conference all about Donald Trump and how he needed to be kicked out of the party. He's gone now. Uh, Rick Perry's gone now. Scott Walker's gone now. So I think there's this, this, this might be different to this issue, but the Cruz response, which everyone recognized at the time, was very cynical and probably going to be effective was to say, well, Donald Trump's tapping into something real, so I'm not going to mess with him. I'm not going to go out of my way to criticize him. I'm going to say, I guess John Kasich originally said this, that there's something he's tapping into. We just need to tap into that ourselves and in a more responsible way. Uh, you know, Kasich more recently has been freaking out and putting out web ads that compare Trump directly to Adolf Hitler. And how's he doing? This is the, the thing that I think panics people. And it's kind of an extension of how just no one knows how to handle this. We've seen, you know, Carly and Carson both followed the 2011 pattern of being an outsider surging and then collapsing. No one knows how to deal with the fact that Trump refuses to collapse and can move the entire gravity of the primary by just saying or doing something weird. Dave, what have they been saying when asked, and I'm sure most of them have been asked, you know, if they would support him in the general election? I mean, most of them will just sort of step away and say, well, he's not going to be the nominee, or they'll, they won't answer it, or they'll say, I will vote for the Republican nominee, and I don't think it's going to be Donald Trump. But um, have you actually heard anyone say that they will vote for Hillary Clinton over him or stay home? Jeb Bush said on uh, Sunday talk be. shows, I think when you ask McCain about it, uh, he puts his head down and jokes, but that's his answer. And McCain, somebody who's very personally friendly with Hillary Clinton, and uh, the last way I saw it asked is this reporter, Niels Lesniewski uh, from Roll Call, is very smart, asked it in the sense of, who do you think would be better in this time of war, the former Secretary of State or Donald Trump? And he still said, well, I'm, you know, He's not going to be the nominee, et cetera, et cetera. That's BS. Yeah. John McCain hey. is totally voting for Hillary Clinton if she's running against Donald Trump. Don't you think? Yeah. Oh, I mean, no question. I mean, it was, it was a weird and answer. But to, to answer your question, there's nothing comparable to, say, 1972, where George Wallace is running as a Democrat. And if you asked Ed Muskie, would you vote for Wallace as a nominee, he would say no. I mean, like, there were people who would just say they're not going to vote for the 
the racist demagogue, even if it's their party's nominee. They're, it's it's going to be horrible. I mean, this happens sometimes, and there needs to be a corollary of Godwin's Law soon when you start comparing our country to France, because France has this very real experience with neo-fascists in the National Front. This happened in France, where there was a runoff between the National Front and uh, the, the conservative president, and the socialists said, oh, sorry, we have to vote for the conservative president now. It was, it's, not, it's not hard to say that this is too extreme for us, except... If, you've, if you're a Republican who watches everyone who criticizes Trump uh, fall apart. Well, well so now the, the National Front is obviously an extremely powerful force in France right now. I mean, is it conceivable that if we have more terrorist attacks in the United States, you know, the, the Trump party or some kind of Trumpism will become like the prevailing possibly majority? I mean, how long can we just sort of safely consign this to the crazy Republican Party, you know, they will lose 48 states if they ever nominate this guy. Did this actually have a higher ceiling than we might be thinking? Yeah, it's also it's so fascinating to compare it with Tea Partyism, which was really, you know, about cutting radically cutting the size of government. Whereas Donald Trump has this much more populist, like he actually kind of wants to maintain much of the size of government. I think he's promised not to cut Social Security, not to cut Medicare, even if he would like repeal the ACA or whatever. And this is entirely this like kind of nationalist, get rid of immigrants, don't let anybody in sentiment. It's sort of fascinating to compare the two. Yes, and I, I'm cautious to say that anything is going to fall apart on its own because this one just hasn't. Donald Trump is very good at riding the zeitgeist, and the zeitgeist has been toxified, I think, by people. I'm not saying they all need to coddle Muslims. I'm actually one of the people who thinks like, it's fine to just say radical Islamic terrorism and move on. Uh, but it's, it's the, the bigger problem is paranoia about what, where terrorism comes from and paranoia about how every Muslim is maybe complicit. Like that, that stuff has been, I think, accelerated by a lot of more mainstream-seeming sources than Donald Trump, and that's what people can't put back in the bottle. It's not right. if, if, even if he's only thirty percent of the primary, he's he's gotten us to a place where the the more moderate you know, anti-Trump solution might be Ted Cruz, <laughs> uh, or it might even be Rand Paul, whose bill who has a bill that would bar you know, students coming to this country if they're from basically most of the Muslim world. I mean, th- those are now mainstream positions, and it's not Trump's fault that they are. Yet to that end, Dave, like this morning I was reading a Politico piece about the president's address, his Oval Office remarks at the start of the week, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. At some point, Politico's Edward Isaac Dover, I think that's his name, right, wrote in all seriousness the, how times have changed and now everyone everywhere feels like they could be mowed down by someone shouting Alu Akbar. And I was like, wait a second. Wait, to your point, Dave, about how this is bigger than just Donald Trump and his words and that there are like very mainstream news outlets that are sort of involved in this. I've heard some of that on the trail. Uh, I definitely have heard people speculate about terrorists attacking them, or, or people, especially if you're in New Hampshire, where people do a lot of work in Boston. Uh, there is a shadow of the Boston Marathon in the sense that we are vulnerable to sell. Curiously, I've heard people say they're pretty confident about homeland security and surveillance and that stuff. It's that they're worried about nobody monitoring radicalization in this country. And I think that's not that ISIS is here already. That's the old kind of phantom. But uh, that there's stuff happening here that hit us at any time. And there's really not a political solution to that. If you're going to rule out what Trump's doing, as we all should, I don't know what the reasonable political solution to that is. That's why I think you get a lot of these Republicans just banging the table and saying we need to be strong 
and we need to say radical is Islamic terror and stuff like that, because those are pretty easy to do, while the solution to what I just described is pretty impossible to see. Dave Weigel, national political correspondent for The Washington Post, thank you so much for your time. It was awesome to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, but we will be right back. Do you need a room of your own on the web? Whether you're a creative professional, a volunteer, a small business owner, a student, or just a person who loves being on the internet, you might want your own site. Squarespace lets you make one without knowing how to use Photoshop or how to code. And those sites are beautiful, as if a pro did it. Squarespace provides easy-to-use tools, and if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code AMERICA to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Okay, we are back, Mark and Annie, and we've talked about Republicans and how they're dealing with the terrorist, the looming terrorist threat, apparently. I want to get your thoughts on the Democrats and specifically the the commander in chief, our current president, who took time out of his busy Kennedy Center honors schedule on Sunday to give a rare Oval Office address that did not meet with a ton of accolades. And that's probably putting it euphemistically. What did you guys think, Annie? Yeah, so I felt like this was a remarkable distillation of, I mean, the things that he was saying, he was saying basically an appeal for for cooler minds to prevail, for complications to be allowed to exist in the universe, for nuance to happen, for people to be able to change strategies and positions. He almost seemed tired doing it. Yeah, that. yeah. There was a going through the motions quality to it. I mean, yeah. look, I think that he was absolutely responsible. I think that he was speaking what he believes. It was almost had this quaint throwback quality of, oh, this is what the president is supposed to do, which is be a grown-up, be a spokesman for the American values we supposedly hold dear. But, I mean, I think the bigger challenge is actually what do you do if you're Hillary? Because Hillary, I mean, Hillary actually has to get elected. If you're Hillary, do you actually take note of the kind of traction you can get by taking some maybe more hardline views on on immigration and sort of how to engage with, with ISIS and on privacy and things like that? So, I mean, I'm actually be curious to see what she says. She hasn't said much on this except statements, but what she says in the next few weeks. What do, right. what do you think? So, I mean, I feel like she's going to double down on gun control. And, yeah, I mean, on the military stuff and kind of like broader response, there I think she does have an edge because she is naturally more hawkish than Barack Obama. At least there's a strong perception. And so she can reasonably say, look, I more so than this administration believe that we need to be aggressive. You know, maybe that will help her. But I certainly don't think that Obama is doing anything that's making life hard for her. Peter Beinart has a great analysis of the president's remarks. One of the things he says that I think made the whole Oval Address ring perhaps not that true was the fact that the president was doing it because he felt the need to address the threat publicly to the American public. But it is a threat that he fundamentally does not really see as an existential menace to America, that he is much more interested and worried about a country like China than he is ISIS. And you can see that in the way that he talks about the ISIS threat, which is that they're amateurs. They're sort of sociopath killers that are now using something to the extent of like they're taking the low road, which is like mass shootings, something that's fairly common in American society because they can't get any elaborate Al-Qaeda style plots off the ground. So it's this weird tension between him trying to tell the American public he's got it all under control and for them not to worry about this worrisome thing. And then he privately, I think, conveys this sense that he isn't, I mean, it is not 
the great urgency of his presidency on a foreign policy level. And I guess if he's made it hard for Hillary, it's maybe there that he hasn't articulated an aggressive strategy. He hasn't been particularly passionate about his feelings about the ISIS threat. And now Hillary, who's really like predicated her candidacy on bear hugging this administration on a policy level is going to be tasked with finding some daylight between herself and the president who she served as secretary of state. But I even think tough talking would work for her. The equanimity with which he describes this, like actually gives her an opportunity to say, we're going to counter this much more aggressively and we're going to do it by firing this many rockets and supporting this many partners. It could be the exact same number as what they're already doing. Because I agree with you that the thing that Obama believes that nobody else in America could quite articulate is that doing more than surgically striking ISIS, sending boots on the ground would just have exactly the effect that ISIS wants. Yeah, but but Hillary is like uh, talked I mean she has been very very cognizant of the progressive left and right. the president right, exactly. said something uh, that I thought was really interesting he said we do not want to get involved in another ground war I right. mean he just said that straight up right and that statement I think does make it difficult for Hillary Clinton because if she speaks in more bellicose language there is going to be skepticism from a lot of I mean I don't know how this plays right but I do think right. the progressive left is going to be well, well wait a second like are you in agreement or not with what pre the president said about a ground war. And I guess that the question then is, does she risk losing the left by being a little more bellicose? And I just don't think I, so, because the alternative is so <clears throat> psycho. Yeah, she can't risk losing the left. I mean, I, I don't think she will be fully candid on this topic until Sanders goes away. Exactly. This is kind of that thing that everybody's been talking about. Does foreign policy become a major topic of discussion right. in the race. And I, I kind of think it, this is showing that it, it's going to. This is yeah. the, the debate is not just going to be over income inequality or, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, unless the economy goes bad. Right. Um, right. Fed's going to raise interest rates and the job. I mean, the jobs report changes from month to month, obviously, but it was strong again. I mean, do what, what if you had to guess right now, do you think that, that it's possible that in the next six to nine months, things deteriorate so dramatically that this edges out? Yeah. Annie, how will so, the economy be in the next Yeah, exactly. Tell, tell us. That. So, also, so where here's should what I, I think is a risk. Here's what I think <laughs> is a risk. Voters don't really care about the state of the economy. They care about trends. So even if the economy is pretty good, if you just look at like GDP numbers and unemployment numbers, but it's perceived to be deteriorating and slowing down, that'll be bad for her. If the unemployment rate goes up a little bit, it still probably won't be that high, but it's going to be really bad for her. And we actually saw this in 2012, where the economy, just looking at the actual state of the economy, was kind of shitty, but the trends were good. And that still meant that it was good for Barack Obama. Precisely the opposite could be true for her. The trend is not great, even if the state of the economy is good. And that gives the Republicans like a lot of space to kind of say, well, you know, again, the Obama boom has sputtered out and wages still aren't up and unemployment is rising again. I think that's the risk for her. Hey, by the way, while Annie, while I was hanging on every word Annie was speaking, <laughs> I was just reading my email. And yeah. So, I mean, Mark. I was like, <laughs> Chris Christie's uh, office um, has come up with a statement saying... Actually, no, it's a interview from um, with Michael Medved he did today where he was asked about Trump's Muslim immigration halt. And Christie said, well, the headline is Christie on Trump. That's ridiculous. So, All right. Yes, Christie has said real it's, talk. That's a pretty uh, good response. You yeah, can always I mean, leave like it to Chris Christie. 
Yeah. Uh, no, you can't. Well, but, yeah, you know, that's true. Yeah, you know, but, but do you, how much <laughs> do you think there's going to yeah. be like a herd mentality, right? So I don't think there Chris will Christie be. Chris Christie is like that's ridiculous. Does that prompt Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz to be? Yes, like, exactly. That's ridiculous. It's only, no. And it's not going to prompt. Mm. Listen, if I'm I'm prognosticating here, which I never do, but uh-huh. um, uh, it's Rubio that I actually really am curious about. I mean, I, we have a sense right. that Cruz is going to try and play this, but whatever slimy way Ted Cruz plays it. But but Marco <laughs> Rubio is the one that I'm really interested in. Yeah, wasn't it Marco Rubio who like quite recently said like something about how we don't have an Islamophobia problem in the in America? Muslims are um, not a protected class in this country, to say the least. I mean, huh. and this is a small, not a coveted voting block. I mean, certainly like Hispanics. And I, I'm not sure that we know the level of damage someone like Donald Trump can do to himself. Yeah. By talking yeah. like this, it was. I was talking with a Pakistani friend about. Yeah, you have a Pakistani friend. I, I do. Have Pakistani oh my god. Friends too, um, <laughs> about right after 9/11, how terrifying it was to be Muslim because you were scared of terrorist attacks like everybody else, and you're also scared of like psycho white people totally. coming after you. God. And I think that it's got to feel that same way now. You know, you hate ISIS too, and you're also like, I'm gonna get shot by some crazy fucking racist. And also, Donald Trump is the front runner in the Republican nominating process. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a great segue, Annie, to our <laughs> closeout speed round, which we call If I Were in Charge. And I will start with you, Mr. Leibovich. What would you do if you were in charge? If I was in charge, I want to sort of hearken to earlier in the show. Uh, maybe this was before we went on the air, but Annie and I are both drinking from bright red plastic party cups. We're drinking our What's water in those cups? Yeah, well, water, it was, it was water, but, but it had a festive like keg party look to them. I would, in these days of fear, division, I would issue a red plastic party cup to every citizen of the United States and mandate that they walk around with their red party cup at all times, whether there's anything in it or not, whether there's anything alcoholic or in it or not. If we are all to walk around with, with shiny red party cups, it would give a level of festivity, of togetherness, of fun. And I just think the whole vibe would change in yeah. this country. The whole world would look like a tailgate or an office party. Now, don't you think that's a good idea? You can get behind that. Right? Yeah. Can you imagine going into like a Walmart where everybody's just like sipping out of red party cups all the time? I'm just thinking like DuPont Circle or like walking. Imagine the streets of New York just filled with. Bourbon Street on Connecticut Avenue. Yeah. Oh, yes. All right. All right. Annie? What would you do if, if I you... were in charge? Mine is mine is a small request, which is I I just want to ban Christmas music in public spaces. That's a that's wow. All. Last wow. week we were talking about who is the Grinch, and I'm I'm done with it. Wow. Except for Mariah Carey's "All I Want for Christmas." Well, is you. that is a good one. Yeah, I'm pro all other like I like gifts. I like the silly sweaters. I just don't like the music. I can't ride with you on that one, my friend. But everyone is entitled to say what they would do if they were in charge, and if that's what you'd do, so be it. Hmm. I would actually require that at least one national media outlet, maybe a television outlet, maybe a print outlet, actually I'd say television or radio, has a Muslim correspondent of great stature who can actually speak to this stuff from some sort of perspective. I just would like to hear from a Muslim voice in the news media as opposed to like a Muslim brought out to like offer analysis. I just think it's important to hear from people who are actually part of the faith and we don't do that often enough. So, yeah. so is that like how John Stewart like had a black correspondent? Like, yeah. Did, did I mean, like honestly, I mean, obviously John Stewart was mm-hmm. making a larger comment and, and maybe mm-hmm. I yeah. am too, but I just, it's like, 
Let's go to but our Muslim. I had this moment where I'm like, I'm going to go hug a Muslim. Well, like, we need Islamophilia, to Yeah. I want to call all of my Muslim friends Seriously. and be like, you are an amazing person, and I love that you are an American, too. Also, let's de-otherize Islam, you know? like yeah. I, I mean, I just think that the mystery and the othering it exacerbates the problem, and it makes it, like, in some fucking parallel universe, okay for Donald Trump to suggest this shit. That is it for Podcast for America. Thanks to our producer, Jocelyn Frank. Thanks to AC Valdez and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show and these suggestions in particular. You will find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And please tell your friends about us too, whatever faith they are. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment wherever you subscribe. I'm sure people will have many this week. It helps other people discover this great show. For Annie Lowry and Mark Leibovich, I'm Alex Wagner in New York. Thanks for listening.